This is what's known as an object lesson, an attention getter. I grew up in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, and uh, I learned to fish with a bobber and a worm, and soon I learned to fish year-round, and I eventually turned to ice fishing. But it really became fun when I moved from Minnesota to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That's the Jerusalem of fly fishing, for those of you who might, <laughs> might know a little bit about it. But it was there that I learned to fly fish, and I was captivated by fly fishing. Got really excited about it. You can see I've got all the gear now. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was a fly fishing guide for a little while. But uh, I learned very quickly to match the hatch. You see, trout feed on aquatic insects, and at various seasons in the year, some of those aquatic insects that live in the depths come to the surface and they emerge, and we call that the hatch. And if you want to catch trout, you have to learn to match the hatch. And so uh, this is going to be an object lesson for uh, Chad's sermon here in just a moment. But I just want to add one important thing, and that is while I'm captivated with fly fishing, and it's a passion in my life, it has been replaced by a passion for winning lost souls to Christ. And so now I'm a fisher of men. All right. Thank you so much, Jim. I need to make sure I don't get caught. Catch and release. <laughs> That's good. Well, you definitely catch. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate your help. Fly fishing is a beautiful sport, is it not? And we have several accomplished uh, fly fishermen here in our church. Uh, Jim and I know Tim Mosley. Uh, I think Mel's quite a fly fisherman in his own right. There may be others. Um, and it sort of stings them a little bit, Jim and I have talked, that I'm using their passion for fly fishing to illustrate temptation to sin. <laughs> Something so beautiful, and that's where we're going this morning. But they all agree that it is a fitting illustration of what you and I as followers of Jesus face in terms of temptation. As we continue this morning in our study of James' little letter, we'll be in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. As we continue our study here, thinking about the big picture theme of this letter, practical grace, the only real kind. You'll remember we were in Galatians before James, and in, in, in Galatians we talked about radical grace, the only real kind. And now we're looking at the same side of, uh, a different side of the same coin, practical grace, the only real kind. If our understanding of the grace of God in Jesus is not radical, if we don't get that it has absolutely nothing to do with what we do and who we are, but everything to do about Jesus, the basis of our salvation, then we don't really understand grace. But on the other hand, if that radical grace doesn't change us and produce practical results in our lives, then we do not know anything of the grace of God. There is no faith in Christ that doesn't result in fruit for Christ in our lives. 
And our passage for this morning, as we continue our study through this little book, communicates an important message that we need to understand and have settled in our hearts and minds once and for all. I want to talk to you this morning from James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, about this, this subject. Don't blame God. We're thinking about temptation. So right up front, the title of the sermon, Temptation and God, you and temptation, don't blame God, whatever you do. Don't blame God when it comes to this issue of temptation, and you're going to see why from our passage. The take-home truth I want you to get today is this. You and I are responsible for the outcome of our trials. We can't control the trials that come our way. God controls the trials. We'll talk about that in a little while. God causes or allows certain things into our lives for His purposes, but what we can control, and the only one who can control the outcome of our trials is us. You and I are responsible for the outcome of our trials. That's the point I think James is wanting to make here in James 1, verses 12 to 18. Listen to the text as we read. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, James pleads. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose uh, to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James plainly states there the goal of our lives. That is perseverance in the faith. In spite of trials. The goal of our lives is to pass the tests that come from God in our trials and to grow in our faith. The context here goes all the way back to the beginning of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where where James had started off by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James, that makes no sense. How do you count it joy, pure joy, when trials are hitting your life And so he tells us in verse 3, here's how. Because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What are these trials? They're tests of our faith. And if we welcome them, they can grow us in our faith and produce perseverance. And verse 4 says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But James, in our passage, wants us to understand what failing the test and, and what, what, what failing the test looks like and what's going on when we quit trusting God and we choose rather to sin. 
When in the middle of a trial, we bail out on obedience and we say, I know that relief will come if I take this path of sin. If I'll give in to the temptation that's present, that always presents itself alongside of the trial, I can escape the negative feelings and impacts and, 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 and consequences of the trial. John MacArthur says every trial has the potential to become a temptation depending on our response. Is that not true to your experience? I mean, if you blow it in a trial, guess what? It's, there's no spiritual neutral. There's either obedience and faithfulness or sin. Falling prey to temptation and sin. Two possible outcomes. We'll look at these in reverse order from how they appear in the text. The first one is sin. The second one is endurance that trusts and obeys God. The first possible outcome of every trial that you face is sin. That's why there's verses 13 through 15 where Peter says in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say. So in other words, you're going to be tempted. Temptation is going to come alongside of the trial. But when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Isn't it amazing how quickly we justify ourselves and blame others? Right? I mean, do you, you ever, anybody ever been guilty of that? This is where every hand in the room should go up if you're breathing and honest at all. Humanity's been blaming God for our sin ever since the Garden of Eden, right? You remember Genesis 3, the story there? Both Eve and Adam indirectly blame God for their sin. Adam said, I mean, God, I ate, but it was the woman you gave me. In other words, God, it's really your fault because you gave me this woman, and she's the one that brought me the fruit, and yes, I ate, but I mean, really, God? I mean, you made her. And then Eve said, yeah, I I ate, but it was the serpent. Though she doesn't spell it out as clearly, the implication is the serpent you made. I mean, you put us in this garden with all these animals and all these trees, and, and, and you, God, I mean, you made the snake. MacArthur says we all sin, and frequently we will blame God by blaming our circumstances, blaming our weakness, blaming our propensities, blaming our surroundings, blaming our friends, blaming our relatives, blaming our family, blaming our economic condition or whatever. But it's not God's fault. Don't blame God. The text says God cannot be tempted, and he does not tempt anyone. The text there, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Literally, in, 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 the, in the Greek language here, we'll look more at this tonight. What, 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 he, what James is saying is God is untemptable. Temptation can't touch him. God, unlike us, doesn't have those inward desires that can be appealed to. Those wicked desires, those desires that, 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 that feed on sin. Nor does he tempt anyone. James is underlining the truth that God is holy and good always. More about that in a minute. Verse 14 goes on, but... 
God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what's really going on in temptation? You can't blame God. That's not the deal. That's not reality. But each person, verse 14, is tempted. Here's exactly what happens every time we're tempted. When they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. Temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. And these evil desires lead to evil actions, and evil actions lead to death. The, the contemporary English version says, we are tempted by our own desires that drag us off and trap us. Our desire makes us sin, and when sin is finished with us, it leaves us dead. Sin's never done you a favor, has it? Sin's never left you better than it found you. Whenever I give in to sin, I'm always worse off for it and, 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 and depleted spiritually because of it. I'm bankrupt by it. Well, what's the source of our temptation again? It's our own evil desires. You know, Jim is a fly fisherman, trout fisherman. Trout are enticed as he described to you, by various artificial flies because they are fish and they're made to to feed on the hatch that he talked about. They want to eat flies. And so what fly fishermen do is the real bug on the left that God created for them to feed on is counterfeited and implanted with the hook on the right, the man-made fly. Because a trout's made to eat the God-made bug. And yet, they're dumb enough to eat a fly that a man made with a hook in it. Fly-fishing flies are counterfeits with hooks. And so are the temptations and sins that appeal to our own evil desires. They're counterfeits with hooks that kill. Now, the counterfeits are only effective because of our sinful desires to settle for counterfeit pleasure, right? I mean, if we were smarter than trout, we could tell the difference. Here's the thing, we are smarter than trout, I think. Jim knows some of us, and he might beg to differ with a few of us, but I mean, pretty much we're smarter than trout. They can't tell the difference. We don't even have that excuse. We're not that dumb. We know the difference. We can discern a hook of the enemy, and yet we bite anyway. Thank you for coming to church today and finding out you're dumber than a trout. (laughs) And I'm chief among the dumb in this regard. Amen? You know, Jesus says... Just, this is where James got this stuff. In, Matthew, in Mark 7, 20 to 23, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus would agree with James, don't blame God. I want to notice just quickly the progression. We talked about the source of temptation, our own evil desires. Notice with me the progression of temptation. 
basically three steps at least. First of all, our own evil desires become pregnant, this text tells us. And then lust's conception results in the birth of sin. And then sin grows up to be death in our lives. You see that progression? We're enticed and dragged away by our own evil desires. And our evil desires conceive and become pregnant. And then they give birth to... That, that conception of our, of, of our lust, of our evil desires, gives birth to sin. And sin, that, that wicked child grows up to be death in our lives. Proverbs 7, verses 20 through 23, in one way illustrates this progression of temptation. As... Solomon describes the, the seductive woman here and, and, and the adulteress. And it says, with persuasive words, she led him astray. We are led astray by our own evil desires and enticed. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her. Lust conception results in the birth of sin. Like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Sin grows up in our lives to become death. As Paul would say in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So the first possible outcome to your trial, my trial, is sin where we give in to our own evil desires and choose not the path of obedience that is almost always, without exception, the more difficult, challenging, hard, uncomfortable, painful way, and we take the easy way out, so it appears, so it feels. And lust gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, and we just thought we had trouble in our trial. And all of a sudden, the chains of sin have wrapped around us tight, and there we are. But there's another option. There's another alternative to sin when temptations come, and this is why God brings and allows the trials. This is His purpose in the trial, not for us to be tempted and and fall prey to sin, but rather to grow our faith in endurance that trusts and obeys God. That's what He's after. That's why we're to count it all joy when trials come, because God is testing our faith, and the testing of our faith produces perseverance. The exercise of our spiritual muscles our, our, and, and, and those faith muscles produces strength and endurance. We'll get stronger and be better at trusting Jesus tomorrow if we're faithful to trust Him today, no matter the cost. The scriptures are full of examples. I think of old Job. Job had some trials, didn't he? God allowed the devil to take away his possessions, his family, his health, thus testing Job's faith. Of course, the devil was working the temptation to sin that was voiced by his wife to curse God and die. In Job 2, verse 9, his wife says, listen, you, I mean, you've lost everything you've got. You're reduced to nothing. Your health is gone. Job, just get, quit this madness. Curse God and die. Get it over with. Take the easy way out. I mean, you, you've had trial after trial after trial. 
Nobody's ever suffered like you have, Job. I mean, Job, just, just, just take the easy way. Get relief from the pain. Curse God and die. Job 2, verse 10, he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then the text gives us what God thought about that response. It says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You know, you know what God's saying? That's God's commentary to say Job did the right thing. It still, even though everything had been taken away from Job, it still would have been sin before a holy God for him to curse God and die. He still would have been wrong. We can say, oh, well, I mean, with all he'd lost, surely he'd be justified just to, to fire off at God and be done. God said, no. Job's right. You sh- should you accept good from God and not trouble? Job, and all he did and said, did not sin. There was Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 in particular? God put Joseph in, in that Egyptian leader Potiphar's house, one of the main army guys there in, 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 Potiphar, in, in Egypt. He put him in, in Potiphar's house where he knew Joseph would be tested. God knew he'd be tested. But God did not author the temptation of lust and adultery as experienced by Joseph from Potiphar's seducing wife. You remember Joseph, in the end, had to, to literally leave his clothes in her hand and run out of the house fast. But God showed him a way out, didn't he? The front door. <laughs> Open it and run, son. I mean, it was that simple. Second Timothy 2, verse 22, tells us that at times that's the very best way to deal with temptation. Flee the desires of youth. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of your pure heart. You're saying, are you saying, Chad, that verse just means run away from sin? No, but I'm saying it certainly means that. It means it it in every way. Physically, run away from sin. Don't don't play with with lust. Run from it. it. It means it literally, but it means it figuratively. In your mind, in what you think about it, in the way you the way you entertain yourself. Don't play with lust. Run from it. And rather pursue, run to righteousness, faith, love, and patience. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, sometimes we end up the victims of sin. We end up enchained by sin because we don't flee. We hang out with it. We hang out with lust. We, we entertain ourselves with things that lead to sin. Y'all tracking with me? She said, Chad, now are you fixing to get legalistic? No, I'm not. It's real simple. You play with lust, you sin. You're, you're not that strong. I'm not that strong. There's nobody that strong. And that's why Paul says run from it. Either literally or figuratively. Get out, get away from it. Don't let your mind dwell in, on those things. Don't let your eyes look at those things. Don't let your hands touch those things. There was Jesus. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God arranged the trial and the test, but he did not author the temptation And what do we see Jesus do in this situation? Jesus quotes scripture to the devil, which enabled him to withstand all three of the enemy's temptations. Every time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus answered with scripture. 
Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Remember, he'd been fasting for 40 days. And the devil said, look, you're, you're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. I mean, eat, man. <laughs> Quit this mess. Have some food. I mean, after all, you're the son of God. You can do whatever you want. Make bread and eat. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God had led him to the, to the time of fasting, and God hadn't let, yet told him that it was time to quit. You ever in the middle of something, you ever been led by God to do something, and God hadn't said it was time for you to be done, but the devil comes along and says, you need to just check out, right? Somebody else comes along and says, man, you, I mean, whew, good night. You've been so faithful in that, you know, I mean, you, you, you deserve a break. You, I mean, you, you need, you need to take, you know, take a vacation, I mean. And yet the Lord hadn't relieved that, that call on your life. It's the word of God by which you live. Now, you see the difference in these other examples and the difference in us is that Jesus didn't have the evil desires within that you and I have and struggle against. His heart was pure and yet... Even he relied on God's word for strength to fight the temptation of even Satan himself. If Jesus needs God's word to fight temptation, do you think you might? Reckon I might want to get some of the book in me to be ready for temptation? I think so. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word, when you store this book in your heart and in your mind, it is powerful. It is a weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, Paul says. It's how you fight off temptation. Hear me. It's one of the main ways. It's the primary power along with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have against sin. Do you know enough of it to fight? How sharp do you keep your sword as it's stored away in your heart? Do you daily get it out and sharpen the blade of this weapon God has given you as it's wielded in your heart? Do you do that? You and I are responsible for the outcome of trials. You know what? If you're not in the Word of God day by day, don't blame God that you keep falling to the same sin. It's not God's fault. I can't point my finger to heaven and say, God, you made me this way. We have a weapon with which to fight. Job, jo Joseph, and Jesus all came through their trials without giving in to temptation and sinning. The outcome of their trials was strengthened was strengthened faith in God and a crown of life waiting on them in heaven. We've seen some of how they did this, but, but a couple of other practical steps quickly. They remembered God's design for their trials. You see, we can't let ourselves off the hook for our sin and blame it on God. But we can know that God is aiming to strengthen our faith, our trust in Him that results in obedience instead of sin. That is what God wants to come out of every trial in which you find yourself. Whatever the nature of it, a stronger trust and dependence on Jesus is God's design and aim in that trial. The second thing they, those men remember, Jesus remembered, Job, Joseph, and that we need to remember is this. As we remember God's design for our trials, we need to run from temptation and run to God and his escape 
route. We need to flee. We need to go away from the temptation. And when we flee temptation, we, we don't just flee temptation. We, we, we run to God and His escape route. God gives us a promise in 1 Corinthians 10, verse, th- verse 13, about temptation. Listen to this. Precious words. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. How many times have you made that, that age-old excuse that's universal to all of humanity, but you just don't understand what it's like for me to be tempted like this? You know, what, you, know what, you know what God says to you through the Word of God? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. You're no different than anybody else. Temptation is just the same for all of us. And furthermore, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, does that mean we always just readily and quickly see the way out? No, but it means that it's there if we're willing to to look and pray and ask and seek. And it means God is there, ready to help us and lead us to the escape hatch. Back onto the path of obedience. As we saw in Joseph's case, and as Paul exhorted Timothy, sometimes the best way to fight temptation is to literally run. God gives a way out, a way to say no to sin. Well, how does this practically work? Well, again, we have to know the truth about God's power at work in us through Jesus. In Romans 6, Paul tells us about God's power and how it relates to us dealing with sin in our lives, how it relates to temptation. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He's talking about holiness. He's talking about obedience. He's talking about overcoming temptation. You see, there is victory in Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul hones it down and he says, one of the keys to us dealing with temptation and living in obedience and not falling prey to sin is the indwelling Spirit of God. Romans 8, 11 says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And he's not talking about the final resurrection there. He's talking about He will enable us in the here and now to obey Jesus. If you raise Jesus from the dead, the same God, if his spirit's in you, he will enable you to overcome sin, to say no to sin and yes to God, to resist your own evil desires and choose the path of obedience. There's a song today called The Same Power. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to raise, lives in us. It's based on Ephesians 1, 19 and following. Check that passage out later. Resurrection power lives in you. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, don't you think he can help us overcome t- the temptations we face? Don't you think he can help us deal with our own wicked desires and say no? Yes, he can. God's promise and God's power are all we need and are always available to help us overcome temptation. That's what verses 16 to 18 of of James 1 are all about. James picks it back up and he says, don't be deceived. He just finished his discussion about temptation, how it works and progresses. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us new birth 
through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James is saying, don't get it wrong about God and temptation. God is good. Remember who he is. God is good and he gives good and perfect gifts. That's the kind of gifts that come down from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. And furthermore, he's unchanging. He's not like the changing shadows of the day, depending on the angle of the sunlight. One preacher said, God's goodness is always at high noon. Every day in your life, he is good. In the middle of your trials, he is good, and he wants good for you from your trials. Another commentator says, if God gives good and does not change, he cannot be trying to trap people into evil. Jesus put it this way, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? The answer to both questions is none of you that are decent at all, decent fathers would do that to your kids. If you then, though you were evil, Jesus said, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, the key is realizing that God alone knows what is truly good and best for us as he allows these various trials of verse 2 to come into our lives. The key is trusting that our Father knows best. You see, verse 18 is, is James' effort to settle the issue of God's goodness in an ultimate and final way. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Who is this God? That we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What's James saying? He's saying this, our salvation is the ultimate demonstration of the goodness of God. How could we ever doubt God's goodness when we remember the word of truth, the good news of a loving, righteous, crucified, and risen Savior? If God has given us salvation by faith in, in the good news of Jesus, how could we ever be so foolish as to blame him for our sin? And further, how can we forget his promise and power to give us all that we need to fight temptation and win? As Romans 8.32 puts it, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's what God's done for you already. He gave Jesus for you. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God gave his son, don't you think he'll give you power in the moment to overcome sin? To say no to temptation. To resist what you want to do in here and do what the Spirit of God is calling you to do. You and I, you see, are responsible for the outcome of our trials. Imagine what our lives would be like if we would, trusting the goodness of our Father, take responsibility for our actions by running to God for help and for the way out of temptation that awaits us in the indwelling resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine the joy in our lives if we resist sin's counterfeit promises and pleasures and choose God's pure ways that never deceive or disappoint. Just imagine what your life could be like. Imagine what our church could look like. Imagine the impact we could have in this community if we would live that way. You see, we can endure trials and pass the test and enjoy the fruits of eternal life here and now as well as on the day we receive the crown of life. The question is very simple. Will we persevere in obedient faith under trials? Will we? 
Will we say no to temptation and yes to Jesus no matter the circumstances? May we. May we hold on to God's promises in Scripture and live in Jesus' indwelling resurrection power by the Holy Spirit as we say no to sin and yes to God. Let's pray together.